Church, a reading from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The King, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they may learn not to blaspheme the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Oh, y'all could do better than that, seriously. Good morning. Okay. All right. Okay. Oh, no. Yeah. Let's say I got Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So my name is Marco. I serve as the, the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, in the event that you did not catch Eric, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're looking at verses 12 through 20, a big chunk of scripture. We've got a lot of work to, to go through, and you'll find 1 Timothy in the New Testament. A um, couple of updates for you as you open or load your Bible. Number one, if you are new, welcome. Love that you are here. So honored to have you. We'd love to hang out with you. And so let me encourage you or even invite you to fill out one of the Connect cards so we can get to know you or have the opportunity to pray for you. In addition to that, uh, we love God's Word. We love to preach out of God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's words. If you don't have a Bible, let us hook you up. That will be our gift to you. The last two are updates based on uh, this building and uh, what we have going on after service. What we have going on after service, if you are new and you've been interested in membership or you just want to learn a little bit more about who we are, uh, we do have a membership class available after service. Uh, we do these once a semester, four Sundays in a row. We ask participants to commit to three out of the four. We started last week, so you're in luck. You can jump in today and be okay. In addition to that, um, if you are a member, you should be receiving updates concerning the incubator and our search for a new home. Uh, you'll get more updates this coming Tuesday. Other than that, I think those are all the updates that I have for you. Let's, let's just dive into our time. Everyone loves, I feel like I sound really loud. Do I sound really loud? No, okay, that's just me. Well, <laughs> it's that push-up. Okay, here we go. Everybody loves a good story. Our beloved valley is steeped in stories. Stories from the past or stories about chisme. Everybody loves a good story, right? And those stories always ga uh, garner our attention at the dinner table or as we sit outside on the porch as the sun begins to set. Stories can be windows into our imagination, 
They could simply be windows into our lives. Stories bring comfort. Stories bring warning and caution. Stories bring inspiration. Sometimes they bring perspective and reality. A good story always has a hero. The one who saves the day, the main point of the cheesemen. Whatever it is that makes us lean in more and more in order to learn about what's about to happen, because the one who's about to save the day is just so engaging and captivating. There's always a hero. Who's the hero of your story? Every single Christian, likewise, has a story. Every single Christian has a story of at one point, being an enemy of God, of having a dead heart, of being made alive in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, of receiving mercy, of receiving grace. Every Christian's story ought to be that Jesus is the hero. What story does your life tell? As we examine our text today, Paul is going to share his story. He's going to share his story with us. And not only is Jesus the hero of his story, Paul wants Timothy and in turn us to know that the story doesn't end with salvation, but leads into contending for the faith. And that's what I want you to walk away with today. If you hear nothing else, here's what I want you to know. The mercy and grace of God saves sinners and equips them to contend for the faith. The mercy and grace of God saves sinners and equips them to contend for the faith. Let me pray and we'll dig into our time. God, we thank you for another morning that has been filled with your grace and your mercy and your provision and certainly your providence. God, as we examine your word, my prayer is that you, Holy Spirit, would illuminate our understanding more of who Jesus is, that you would both comfort but also uh, convict us uh, in a way that's challenging, in a way that, that leads us into action uh, by way of repentance. God, I pray that those who know Jesus would uh, know him better this morning or after this morning. And I pray that those who don't know Jesus would come and know Jesus. We thank you and we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. So we're going to look at this big chunk of Scripture in four sections. The first one, normally I give you all of them, but I'm only going to give you one at a time, create some suspense, unless you have the notes online, then it doesn't matter, right? Uh, but here, here's the first section. It's, in, it's found in verses 12 through 15, and this is the story of grace for sinners. Once more, the story of grace for sinners. Paul begins, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. If you were here last week, when you consider everything that Paul had previously said about the law, I want you to notice that in light of what he said, he doesn't elevate himself above the law. 
But in fact, he says, man, I'm the kind of individual who knows about my sin because the law has revealed my sin. In this section, Paul is who he was talking about in the preceding verses. Very briefly, let's go back up just in case you weren't around. Paul goes on to say in verse 9, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. Paul is saying, I'm one of those. The law has revealed that about me. And so in verse 12, what Paul goes on to talk about or what Paul begins to tell Timothy is that Jesus has both strengthened him and judged him faithfully. Here's what Paul means by that. It's that Jesus is the one who strengthens us for what he has called us to do. Now, in the context of what Paul is saying, he's not talking about his sanctification, the the process of, of, of growing in our faith. He's talking about conversion. Paul is saying Jesus strengthens us by his grace to come to him. Let's read that one more time. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Man, what is it? What is it that that strengthens us to come before the Lord? It is his grace. And he adds that Jesus judged him faithfully. What does Paul mean by that? It means that Jesus saved Paul and called him into ministry, not because of anything done by Paul on his part. What was the basis for Paul's position? In a moment, we're going to see the kind of person he used to be. In short, Paul is saying, man, Jesus judged me faithfully, not because of anything that I've done. Jesus has strengthened me solely by his grace. In short, I received mercy. I received mercy. And he continues. Verse 13. Though formerly, here's where he goes into a story, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul is telling Timothy, hey, it is the grace of God that has strengthened me to come before God, and it wasn't because I'm so cool that Jesus saved me. Well, why did Jesus save Paul? simply because of his mercy. And Paul adds his story to give flair, like there's nothing that I did to earn this salvation. So he calls himself a blasphemer. That is, that he spoke against the word of God, against the character of God. He says that he was a persecutor. That means that he put people in jail. He says that he was an insolent opponent. That means that he actually put people to death. And here's the first thing that I want you to notice about Paul's story. And I don't want you to miss this. He writes honestly about his depravity. He writes honestly about his sin and his lifestyle. He's sharing and laying his heart out about who he used to be. That's incredibly vulnerable and incredibly responsible. Can you be that honest about your story? This is important because in a moment we're going to see that the more Paul becomes aware of his sin, the bigger the cross of Jesus gets for him. He continues 
by saying that he acted in ignorance and unbelief. Doesn't mean that Paul was dumb or incompetent. It means that he was uninformed. It means that he did not know God or the gospel. He did not understand the gospel. So for a minute, let's pause. Let's think about Paul's track record. Again, he's talking about God strengthening him. He's talking about receiving mercy. Let's look at his track record. Acts 8, uh, verse 3, this is what it says, But Saul, who is Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9.1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Acts 22, this is him talking. He says, I persecuted this way to the death the way being Christians, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Acts 26, he goes on to say, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against him. That's who Paul was. And of all the people, he's saying, I received Mercy. Now, here's the irony of Paul's story, and this is why he writes that he was acting in ignorance and in unbelief. Paul seriously thought he was doing work for the Lord. Paul thought what he was doing was right. Jesus writes about this, or he says this to his disciples. This is John 16. He says, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. This is the guy that received God's grace. This is the guy that received mercy. And so in this section, Paul is just pretty much worshiping as he's opening up about his story. In verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In receiving mercy, Paul received the gift of faith. What's the gift of faith other than knowing God? What's the gift of love other than loving others as Jesus loves others? In verse 15, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That little phrase, the saying is trustworthy. In other words, what Paul is saying is you can depend on this. You can, you can bank on what I'm about to tell you. What I'm about to tell you is not only reliable, it's historical, it's also hopeful. And that is that Jesus saves sinners. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Notice that Paul doesn't refer to himself as, oh, I'm, I'm one of the worst sinners. I was a sinner. He's referring to himself in the present tense. Paul isn't unaware of his sin. Paul says that he is the worst. 
And when we go back to last week's text at 9 through 11, where Paul unpacks the purpose of the law and he condemns various sins, Paul is ultimately saying, when he says, I'm the worst of them, he's saying, I'm, I'm worse than those people I was talking about. You think I'm elevating myself? I'm worse than them. Christianity is only for bad people. It's the only religion for bad people. Seemingly, every other religion teaches that you can eventually and ultimately be good enough on your own. But Christianity is the only one for bad people, where bad people go to a good and righteous God to receive forgiveness of sin and the newness of life. And you ask, well, how, how does that happen? The law that Paul wrote about in, in verses 9 through 11, the law that reveals just how bad we are, the law that reminds us of how, how well we can't keep it uh, or follow it, was actually kept by Jesus on our behalf and then died in our place for our sin, was buried and uh, rose from the dead on the third day to offer us the free gift of salvation that we cannot earn. And Jesus calls all who turn to him in faith, in repentance. And so in this section, I know I covered it pretty quickly. Here's what I want you to know. This is kind of a recap. Here's what I want you to know about this first section of Paul's story. Number one, our story is not the gospel, but the gospel is a part of our story. A lot of young believers will, will do this where uh, they'll say, man, I shared the gospel with my friend, with my family. You ask, oh, what'd you tell them? And they just say, I started going to church. Or they'll say something like, um, well, I, I shared the gospel that I was bad and now I'm good because now I, I believe in God. Your story isn't the gospel, but the gospel is a part of your story. And the gospel is the saving work of Jesus for you. Salvation is a monumental occasion in the life of a believer, but it does not end there. You see, for many of you, it was, I was saved and that's it. I believe in God. I'm good. I go to church now. I'm in community group. I don't do some of the things I used to do. I was saved, but now there's nothing. You might even say that you're lukewarm. If that's you, a good question to ask is, are you a Christian? Do you hate sin? Do you want to love Jesus? Then repent and return to him. Salvation by faith in Jesus doesn't mean it's done and it's over and you don't have to do anything. Go do whatever it is that you want. Like some of you say, I'm saved, but you still want to live in your sin. I, I don't see how that works. Right? Paul demonstrates that the grace of God radically transformed him. Not that he's unaware of his sin, but he has been radically transformed by the grace of God. Second thing I want you to know is that what Paul thought he was doing early on, he thought he was right. 
our culture tells us to do what feels right, to be sincere. Let me tell you, you can be sincerely wrong. God's grace saves Paul, which means God's grace can save anyone at any time he pleases. God is so good and gracious and generous to save whom he pleases. There's this congregant in another Acts 29 church, and the uh, pastor was telling the story of, of this, this one dude. He was watching this, I don't, I don't know the guy's name. Anyway, he was watching The Simpsons one day. And on this episode of The Simpsons, uh, they were making fun of the church with the reverend. I don't know if you ever watched The Simpsons. Anyway, the reverend, was like, they were making fun of the church, and they were talking about the rapture. And the guy did not grow up in the church, knew nothing about the church, and so he hears this, and he's like, what's the rapture? So he Googles what the rapture is. Upon Googling what the rapture is, he freaks out and starts to just become terrified at the end of the world. He Googles nearest church to me. He goes to this dude's church, his Acts 29 church. He goes to this church, hears the gospel for the very first time, and is saved like a week later. Like, how does that happen? <laughs> like, Jesus will use whoever he wants and speak through whomever he wants. The point is that his grace will save whomever he wants whenever he wants. The grace of God is bigger than your sin. You cannot outsin God's grace, no matter how terribly you think you can. Finally, God's saving grace doesn't mean that Paul had to go get cleaned up. No. No, God is the great cleanser. He's the one that took care of that for Paul. God is the one that takes care of that for you and I through Jesus. So let me just, let me just encourage you. Stop fighting. Stop fighting. Man, some of you bank on this. I just got to do X, Y, and Z. If only A, B, and C. No, stop fighting. There, there is a line where that fighting becomes prideful and arrogant. Okay? There is a line when that fighting is arrogance. The nudge in my heart tells me that many of you are there and you know that line. Please do not presume upon the Lord. Stop fighting. Return to Him. Why? Because God's saving grace is for sinners. Number two, the mercy of Jesus is for the unworthy. This is verse 16. Paul writes, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We're just looking at that one section, that one verse, excuse me. Paul repeats himself. He says it twice in this section that he has received mercy. 
And this is so good. This is so Paul. He doesn't let go of what God has done. Like he holds on to that dearly. And that is my hope for you, that you hold on dearly to what God has done for you in Jesus. And so in this little verse, what Paul is saying is that the only reason I am who I am, that is redeemed, not even an apostle, is because of God's mercy. That is, not getting what he deserves, not getting death, not getting condemnation, not getting eternal separation. He has received mercy. Christian, that is part of your story, that you have received mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. The psalmist says it this way, praying to God, you withdrew all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. Christian, let me ask you, how often do you remember mercy? How often do you remember mercy? That you are where you are, you stand where you stand because you have received mercy. And it's such a big deal because Paul continues, right? But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, as the worst sinner, he's still looking at himself that way, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe, right? Paul is saying, God did not see something in me, and God thinking, you know what? That Paul, I know what I'm, man, he has what I need. He has the stuff. Paul or God did not do that. In addition to that, Paul didn't meet God halfway. Paul didn't cycle through the benefits and disadvantages of knowing Christ. God or Paul did not make the proper steps forward. No, Paul was saved according to God's mercy. And he says something similar to Titus. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but his own mercy. The salvation that we have is one that we have received, not achieved. Like this entire testimony is like Paul is the, the, the walking parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, right? When we walk through the parables, that was one of the parables that we did. And so both go into the temple and the Pharisee says, uh, God, I'm so glad I'm not like other men, especially this dude over there. Uh, I give twice a week or whatever. I fast. I pray all of the time. I'm awesome. And then you have this tax collector on the other side who can't even lift his head up to heaven. And he beats his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Paul is like the walking testimony of that parable. God showed him mercy when God owed him nothing. See, it's the grace of God that folded Paul into the family of God, but it was the mercy of God that saved him from sin, death, and condemnation. And so what's the result of the Christian receiving mercy? Paul tells us. God's 
patience would be revealed. I received mercy for this reason, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is a walking testimony of God's mercy and patience. Paul is saying, if God can save me, he can save anyone. No one is beyond saving grace. When we remember mercy, we remember how patient Jesus is with us. Think about it. Jesus has been very patient with you. Jesus continues to be very patient with you. That's mercy. And so in this verse, let me say two things. First, I want you to rest here for a moment, church. I want you to rest here, and I want you to work the patience of Jesus into your heart. He doesn't kick you out when you blow it. No matter how much you think he will, he hasn't and he doesn't. So I want you to park here for a little bit and work the patience of Jesus into your heart. Jesus is patient. He is steadfast. He is gracious. He is merciful. Second, if your heart is cold or lukewarm, please do not presume upon the patience of Jesus. My question is, what will it take for you to repent? Is it a better sermon? A better life? A more dramatic life experience? Why not now? You have to do business with who Jesus is. And so just as an encouragement, as a friend, as a brother, do not presume upon the patience of Jesus. Do business with it today. Because the mercy of God is for the unworthy. This is where that line of arrogance still plays in. Because some of you might say, yeah, it's exactly because I'm unworthy that I can't repent. No, that's the point. That's the point. Grace and mercy is for you. So do not presume upon the patience of Jesus. The mercy of God is for the unworthy. Thirdly, this is the, verse 17, this is the worship of Jesus from the redeemed. Here's what Paul says. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As Paul recounts his story, and the glory of God's mercy and grace, he erupts into praise and worship of the only God, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for him. And that's what the gospel infused into our life does. It brings about worship for, uh, from the repentant. 
Paul is overwhelmed with God's mercy and grace. And so we see that Paul doesn't deny who he was. He doesn't deny his sin. He doesn't deny his depravity. He's clearly aware of his sin. But the more Paul is aware of his sin, the louder his praise becomes because the bigger the cross gets for Paul. The more he's aware, the bigger and brighter God's grace is to him. The more he's aware, the louder he preaches the gospel to himself. And that's the beauty of the gospel. You cannot out God's grace. Some of you get stuck in the messiness and ugliness of your sin. You're like, man, I'm just going to be here forever. I can't get out of this. Let me encourage you. Jesus has forgiven you. He has paid for your sin, Christian. God is most pleased with you because of Jesus. God has revealed himself to you in Jesus. Worship is a result of what we give ourselves to. We are all worshipers. Everyone, and if you're not a Christian, this applies to you as well. Everyone is a worshiper. The question is, who or what do you worship? What do you mean by by worship? What do you give your time to, your thoughts, your investment, your affection, your money, your effort, your life to? That is who or what you worship. And the only one worthy of our praise is the Lord Jesus, because Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only one who will never let you down. Jesus is the only one who will never fail you. Jesus is the only hope in our lives. May our worship be as passionate as Paul's simply because of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Do not miss that. The redeemed, the repentant, worship Jesus. And finally, the saints contend for the faith. This is verses uh, 18 through 20. It's as if uh, Paul comes out of this really intense worshipful moment, like he just took the headphones off, right, because he was jamming out to some praise and worship, and, uh, and he remembers, oh, I'm, I'm writing a letter. I've got to get back to Timothy, right? And so uh, Paul reminds Timothy of the purpose he writes to him, right? And so this is verse 18. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, right? And so Paul comes back to the charge. Hey, this is what God has done for me. You've seen this in my life, right? As a result of this, hey, here's the charge, right? Here's the reminder of why I'm writing to you. And if you guys were here with us last week, right, the, the, the reason Paul is writing to Timothy is because he is charging him to confront and correct false teachers in the church, right? People in the church. That's what Paul is writing to Timothy for. So when he says this charge, he's reminding him, hey, you're going to go confront and correct these false teachers. This is certainly a, uh, Timothy's task, 
But make no mistake about it, it is a responsibility that we have as well to confront and to correct false teachers. One of the reasons we think that's so important, particularly in community, is because in community is when you are known and when you are challenged. In community is where your beliefs uh, are exposed um, through the way in which you live. And so when it comes to this, as Paul is writing to Timothy, he is telling him, hey, some stuff has come up. You're going to confront and correct them. And one of the questions I got last week was, man, how do we do that? How do we confront and correct false teachers? How do we confront and correct brothers and sisters? You do so lovingly. You do so patiently. And you do so by stepping into their lives. And it's sometimes going to be an uncomfortable conversation. It doesn't always have to be. But you do so lovingly. And you do so patiently. What is true across the board is that we're going to do something about it. We don't want to be individuals who are like, oh man, God's going to sort it out. No, our role is actually to step into one another's lives. So that's the charge. And then Paul encourages Timothy, right? Because one of the things, if you remember about Timothy, he's really timid. He's really shy. He's already getting some heat. And so he doesn't know, uh, you could tell Timothy doesn't want to do this, right? Like, this is really uncomfortable, but Paul's like, good thing I didn't ask, right? Here you go. This is what you're going to do. He says, to this charge, I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies. What are the prophecies? We're not really sure. This could have been his good standing with other brothers. We see that in Acts 16. This could be when Paul commissioned him and laid hands on him. He talks about that in 2 Timothy. Um, It could be a special word or word spoken over Timothy. We're, We're not really sure. But Paul uses that as an encouragement, saying, hey, you can do this. Like, God has equipped you for this. Like, you may not want to do this. I know this is what needs to happen, and God has equipped you for this. And he tells him that as he's going to execute this charge, to wage a good warfare. It's an interesting line. Wage good warfare. Why would Paul say that? Well, Paul is telling Timothy to fight for the gospel. Paul is telling Timothy to contend for sound teaching. And when it comes to fighting for the gospel, when it comes to contending for the faith, that's always going to be good warfare. Now, that doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be pleasant. But it's going to be good warfare in the sense that the cause is noble, the cause is primarily the gospel. And so when he tells him, wage good warfare, he says, fight for the gospel. And fighting for the gospel is always good warfare. He continues, holding faith and good conscience. So as he does this, as he fights for the gospel, make sure you hold on to faith and good conscience. And so essentially faith and good conscience, he's talking about what he believes. That's what God has revealed to him, right, about himself, what he believes and how he lives. What you and I need to remember is that belief is never divorced from behavior. As much as you'd like it to be. Belief is never divorced from behavior. And so when Paul says, wage good warfare by holding faith and good conscience, he's saying, hey, you're going to wage, you're going to fight for the gospel, both in light of what you believe and how you live out what you believe. And the way you're going to live out what you believe is by confronting and correcting these false teachers. Right? Because some Christians are all about it, but they don't want to do anything about it. You know what I'm saying? All talk, no walk. You know, keyboard warriors. That might be some of y'all, right? 
That's, what, that's ultimately what, what Paul is telling Timothy. Hey, I know you're about it. That's why I'm telling you to do something. Right? Because that's actually the role we have as Christians. We're going to go do something about it. He continues. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may, not le- that they may learn not to blaspheme. So in this last part, Paul kind of gives him the why. It's like, hey, here's the charge. You're going to go confront. Hey, you can do this. Don't forget about the words spoken over you, right? Hey, make sure belief and behavior, you're not divorced. Here's why I need you to do this, right? I need you to do this because some have rejected this. And so rejecting this, the word this implies uh, faith and conscience, belief and behavior, like they're, they're inconsistent. In short, when he says that they have shipwrecked their faith, he's ultimately saying, hey, these guys have walked away from Jesus. They've walked away from Jesus. They've walked away from the church. Part of the reason he calls them out, many scholars believe, is because these individuals were more than likely pastors or prominent leaders in the church. That's why he calls them out by name. And so he tells them, uh, he tells them to, to, he gives them this charge, and he tells them, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan. Right? Here it is. Why is it so important to confront false teachers? Because false teaching destroys people. Particularly if these men were leaders in the church, that means a lot of people were probably hurt. And we love God's people, so we want to lovingly confront and correct false teachers. Not to belittle them, not to show them how right we are, but so that there would be hope for restoration. Like, Paul saying that he handed him over to Satan, we'll talk about that in a minute. Paul saying that he handed him over to Satan, essentially he's saying, hey, I kicked him out of the church. Like, they had to go through a lot of doors to get there. That's them living in unrepentant sin after Paul or maybe other leaders had already spoken to them. For Paul to say, I handed them over, they walked through a lot of doors to get there. And so each time we come to confront false teachers or we come to correct one another, we do so with the hope of restoration. We're not doing so to prove how many theology books we read or how many magazines or how many articles we read online or how cool we are philosophically. We're doing this so that there would be a hope for restoration, repentance in part. That's why we do it, so that we would point one another to Jesus And so for Paul to say, I hand them over to Satan, means a lot of things. One, that they were unrepentant. Two, that they walked through a lot of doors, a lot of opportunities to get there, to repent, and they didn't. Three, handing them over to Satan, Paul is saying, fine, I'm going to leave them to their sin. And at this point, it is no longer healthy for the church. I'm going to release them into their sin. But even in that phrase, go back to it, whom I have handed over to Satan, right? So that's, he's kicked him out, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That little phrase, that they may learn not to blaspheme, essentially Paul is leaving the door cracked open and saying, maybe they will be grieved about their sin and there will be hope for restoration. Even there he hopes for restoration, and that is not uncommon from Paul. He says the same thing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 right? There's an individual who's either sleeping with his mom or his stepmom. Either one is not good, 
<laughs> and they have regularly told this individual to repent, repent, and he hasn't. And so Paul says, so I handed him over to Satan. I left him to his sin in the hopes that there would be repentance. In 2 Corinthians, and then to the Thessalonians, Paul says, I really hope that in their sin, they would be grieved. Because when the individual is grieved, they are made aware of the decisions they have made. And when they are repentant, that's when the church swoops in to get them. It doesn't leave them there to say, finally, I told you, bro. No, the church sweeps in and brings them back in. There's a hope for restoration when we contend for the gospel. The saints contend for the faith. Sometimes it's with tears. Sometimes it's with pleading. Sometimes it's just a wake-up call to other Christians. But it's never easy. It's not necessarily pleasant all the time. I've seen this happen, sadly, a number of times. The saints contend for the faith. Paul is ultimately telling Timothy here, hey, we're not going to tolerate sin. We're going to confront one another with the truth of God's word. We're going to promote sound teaching, sound doctrine. We're going to hope for restoration, but we're not going to tolerate sin. The saints contend for the faith. The story of our life and the glory of God's mercy and grace is that it saves sinners through Jesus. And the beauty of this gospel is that it does not end there. Jesus is not finished with you. Though you may be keenly aware of your sin, the grace of Jesus is bigger than your sin. And you might add, but I've really screwed it up. And then I would say his grace is way bigger than that screw up. His mercy and grace is specifically for sinners, for the unrighteous, for the unworthy. Not only has he been patient with you, he calls you to himself. Church, do not delay. Additionally, this same Jesus equips us by strengthening us to contend for the faith. Do you love the gospel? God, through Paul, tells you and I there are two kinds of teaching, false teaching and sound teaching. You're believing one of them. Which one is it? We titled this series Family Matters because we're examining matters of importance as a church family. And one of the things that we value as a church family is truth, that the Word of God reveals the nature and will of God through the person and work of Jesus. The story and glory of God's mercy and grace is that it's all about Jesus. So as we close, Christian, where are you at with Jesus today? And how's it going? Where are you at with Jesus and how's it going? Are you thankful for His mercy and grace? Are you lukewarm? Neither cold nor hot. You might ask, well, how do I know if I'm lukewarm? There's more complaint than confession. There's a desire. No, scratch that. There's a willingness 
as you choose ignorance. That's how you know you're lukewarm. Jesus has been and is patient with you. So let me invite you to turn to him, to repent before the Lord Jesus so that your heart would be renewed. I love Psalm 103. The opening of Psalm 103 says, my soul praise the Lord. Do not forget his benefits. And one of them is forgiveness and uh, redemption, but there's one, it's renewal. So turn to him. Turn to him for renewal. And if you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, love that you're here. Love that you're here because it's an honor to have you. You have a story and your story matters. Part of that story is that you're an enemy of God, estranged from God. Yet, in his kindness and patience, he has offered a way for you to be made new through Jesus. So you too, let me invite you to repent and turn to him to receive mercy and grace. Church, the mercy and grace of God saves sinners and equips them to contend for the faith. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of mercy, grace, and truth. May our souls praise you this morning. May our hearts rejoice in remembering your benefits, the forgiveness of sins, redemption, renewal, your steadfast love and patience. The message of your grace and truth, the message of your grace and truth is that you have not dealt with us according to our sins, that you have not repaid us according to our iniquities. You have proven this through the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners like us. Lord, may we simply rejoice and marvel at your mercy and grace this morning. And Holy Spirit, would you empower us with a boldness to contend for the gospel, to step into the lives of one another with the truth of your word, to step outside of our comfort for your glory and our good and the good of our brothers and sisters. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight this morning. Amen.